Good morning, everyone. We are now going to be going through our fifth lesson on the Westminster Confession of Faith's uh, description of Holy Scripture in Chapter 1 of the Confession. And it's good to see everybody here. You know, we all lost an hour of sleep last night as we sprung forward, but it's a good bright early morning, and it's a good way to start the day. Um, So in review, this class, we've covered a lot about the doctrines of Holy Scripture. We've uh, gone through the first six paragraphs. Uh, Mr. John Nyman prepared last week for three, but the nature of the sixth paragraph, we only got through one. And in uh, review, I decided that we're actually only going to do one today as well. So the seventh paragraph is, is very immense. It talks about the clarity of Scripture. And we're going to be focusing just on that one paragraph uh, for the majority of the class. But just in review, the things that we've covered is we've covered the necessity of the necessity of Scripture, the canon of Scripture, and what is not comprised in the biblical canon, how we define what Scripture is, the authority of Scripture, and Scripture's sufficiency. We talked about Scripture's sufficiency last week in the sixth paragraph. And just to begin reading God's Word regarding the sufficiency of Scripture... Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 reads this. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That was actually 19 through 21. One thing that I would like to touch on before we get into the seventh paragraph of the uh, chapter one Westminster Confession is this idea of continuationism and cessationism. They're not terms that we used yesterday, but I think it's appropriate to address these terms so that we can actually confessionally respond to an unbiblical view on what we would focus on it being the miraculous gifts as talked about in the New Testament. So the continuationist view as we understand it, is, an, is a biblical belief that uh, miraculous gifts, such as prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, etc., are existing in the church of Jesus Christ this day. Cessationism is a belief that those former ways of God revealing himself through miraculous gifts in the time of the apostles have ceased the Reformed position is a cessationist position. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto, this, unto his people now being ceased, as we read in paragraph one of the first chapter. The eighth, uh, eighth paragraph calls the Bible the whole counsel of God, complete in its work, and uh, not to add or take away from it. And I have this book that I've been reading uh, by Samuel Waldron called To Be Continued, Are the Miraculous Gifts for Today? And I want to read a little excerpt in the preface. I always love reading um, the prefaces of books. I get a lot from even just those little snippets of overview. But this reads, uh, To my continuationist friends who read this book, let me admit that I fear you have already defeated the cessationist view in the propaganda battle. Continuationism sounds much more bright and hopeful than the dour and sour sound of cessationism. In a day where it is so important to be positive, insert a smiley face, 
and so bad to be negative, as in don't be so negative, continuationism sounds more positive than cessationism. All I plead here is that you do not think because you have won the propaganda battle by being pro-miraculous gifts, while others are anti-miraculous gifts, that you have won the biblical battle. Sounds, as well as looks, may be deceiving. The negative warnings and commands of the Bible, take care lest you or thou shalt not, offer a much more hope, much larger hope and bigger, brighter future than the very positive view of false prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Even so, cessationism offers a perspective that calls the church to take its stand not on the sandy foundation of continuing miraculous gifts, but on the mighty and majestic written word of God. Um, And I agree with Sam Waldron in his assessment that continuationism is a very positive-sounding thing. And the term cessationism sounds pretty negative. In the minds of many continuationists, the debate has to do with God's power. How can we, in the New Testament church, doubt God's ability to do things uh, and work through people in miraculous ways? The debate has nothing to do with God's ability, but how you understand the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. And that's something that we need to wrestle with um, today. I have a story. When I was in high school, I was becoming interested in the things of God and kind of taking hold of my faith for the first time. And I grew up in a historically Roman Catholic family. So here I was as a high schooler defending the Romanist view of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And I was telling myself, well, if I believe that God can part the Red Sea and move mountains, then why can't the Lord change a piece of bread into an actual body and blood or or wine into, into actual blood? So in my mind, it was framed as a question of faith. Like I have the faith that God would be able to do this. Unfortunately, as time went on, you know, I realized that it's not about God's ability nor um, uh, what I believe dependent on my own faith. It's actually what God has set down in his word uh, that we need to be talking about. You know, there are, are even things the Lord cannot do, like contradict his word, for example. One of the things we need to be thinking about in our day is the popularity of the continuationist view and even the concept of revival. We've recently been seeing in the news the Asbury Revival in Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. And though God may be at work there, there is a fundamental failure to see that all the tools available for revival are present every Lord's Day in public worship, in the preaching of God's word, week by week. And we want to make sure that we are framing our understanding of Holy Scripture in the right way. It is sufficient. And this intro is to kind of bolster what we talked about last week in the sixth paragraph of the first chapter, that we believe Scripture is sufficient unto itself. I just want to read, as we end that introduction, John, chapter 20. Starting in verse... 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, after he was resurrected. 
The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So when we talk about continuationism and cessationism, it's not that cessationists have a lack of faith. They actually have a greater bolstered faith in God's written revelation. They don't require miraculous gifts uh, to, to recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work. Any questions about cessationism and continuationism before we move on? That was an introduction that kind of addressed what we talked about last week regarding Scripture's sufficiency. And if there are no questions, please turn with me to paragraph 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. I believe in your Trinity Psalter hymnal on page 900. And 20. Yeah, 920. The seventh paragraph reads this. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or another, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. I want to talk about the doctrine of perspicuity. Has anybody ever heard that term before? Yeah, perspicuity, it's a doctrine that we've already established so far in this class, even though we haven't used the word. Perspicuity simply means clarity or clearness. And this, in relation to the Bible, is simply a belief that God's word was written in order to be understood, that it is an understandable document. Scriptural perspicuity flies in the face of popular views on the Holy Scriptures, namely that the truths of Scriptures are relative, and their truth is whatever it means to you, like modern art that you stare at and determine what it means to you or how it makes you feel. Or even the ever-popular view, view that the Bible is so lofty and God so unimaginable that who can really know what the Bible is telling us? That view is typically used as an excuse to avoid hard truths. In some historical cases, it even took a religious elite who could interpret Latin to communicate God's word to the masses. When this very idea was discussed with William Tyndale, with a bishop in the Church of England, Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God spare my life, I will make the boy that driveth the plow know more of the scriptures than thou dost. So here we have this concept 
laid down here in the seventh paragraph of the Westminster Confession of Faith that the Word of God is meant to be understood. Okay? We have discussed Scripture's purpose. We've discussed its authority being the very words of God. Therefore, it ought to be heeded, believed, and obeyed. To accomplish those callings, God's word must be understood by the reader. It's the point of God's word. And we can marvel that just as this paragraph explains, God has made saving truths understandable to even the unlearned among us. Now, that that term, learned and unlearned, is... um, you know, it takes on different forms and shapes throughout history. You know, at the time of the Westminster Confessions of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith's writing, the learned and the unlearned had a lot to do with literacy. Today, most people can read in the United States, not the case in everywhere in the world. Uh, but even the unlearned among us can clearly perceive saving truths in Scripture, including children, as we're exhorted to teach children the truths of God as we bring them up in the way that they should go and those with learning disabilities as well they can clearly perceive that God's word is communicating central truths I'm going to read quickly Psalm 119 it's just one verse Psalm 119 130 the entrance of your words give light it gives understanding to the simple the fact that even the learned among us, right, those of us who may even be seminary trained, um, which I don't think is anybody in this room, but in adjacent rooms, teaching other classes, we still are pretty simple in compared to an infinite God. So the fact that we can understand anything about him is an incredible condescension on his part. The Lord communicates to us in a way that we may understand. Any questions about perspicuity? It's kind of a, I feel like every time I say perspicuity, I sound like I'm speaking in an English accent. But (laughs) Any questions about that concept that it's meant to be understood and even how the world challenges that view? Like, how can you know? Yeah, Art. Certainly so. It's been a real struggle with this sort of thing. It's contextual stuff. How simple can you go? Yes. And and, and stay in the Word. Get what the Lord is teaching. As opposed to what's being said. There's a teaching that's going on. I think that's what I've learned. It seems like you're you're, you're trying to get to the teaching. As opposed Mm. to, you know, what's the Lord trying to say to me? What's the communication that, 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 that I'm getting? Holy Spirit is mediating this whole, this, all this stuff. And that's why the simple can work out because the Holy Spirit can mediate that in a certain sort of way. But 
you can see how people can go off off the cage of my pilgrim. Yeah. Pilgrim's progress. You know, you can easily get off that straight and narrow. Uh, it's been a real struggle after learning the complexity of this kind of thinking. It's like double think or triple think. You know, you, it's it's kind of strange. I don't know if you have a comment on that. No, no. I mean, what you're saying is excellent. I mean, the, the concept of context, studying the scriptures in a way that they're meant to be studied. And there was, and we had this rule of twenty, uh, 20, 20 rule. Go twenty verses up. Go twenty verses down. Mm. That that, and then you can you can get a better idea of what those little verses are. We're saying. actually two lessons from now. I'm going to focus on the ninth paragraph of the first chapter, which is the infallible rule of the interpretation of Scripture, and we're going to talk a lot about pretty much how to study the Bible, and uh, everything you're saying there is really excellent because context is is really key. You know, we uh, read. Any, uh, any consequences before we went to the study of Yes. Yeah. I mean, historical context, and Hank, I'll get to you in just a second. Historical context helps us confront hard truths in Scripture. Like, what, what did slavery look like in ancient Israel? When we read it with 21st century eyeballs, you know, that, that can be, seem scary and almost like God is condoning a certain behavior of chattel slavery in the ancient world. However, it was a very different institution. And when we use context to understand what the scriptures are trying to tell us, we read that masters and slaves coexisted in the church of God and called each other brother. All created equal in the eyes of God, that's for sure. Yeah, context is excellent. Yes, Hank. I suspect, though I've never encountered it myself, that people who don't believe in the Bible would say, well, right there in the first chapter of Genesis is something completely unbelievable. The world was created in everything that was made in seven days. Yeah. Now, that alone disqualifies the rest of the Bible. Yeah. And I think our divines address, address that nicely when they say it's to be known, believed, and observed with salvation. You can believe it or you don't have to believe it. But it, for those of us who believe it, that's all that matters. Mm. Whether, whether a day is a day, 24 hours, or whether it's an eel. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the idea of the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts alongside of Holy Scripture, this even goes back to the continuationism idea. God does not operate outside of his word. He never contradicts his word. So when the Lord is testifying in your heart that the word of God is true... It's, it's a cessationist idea. I know that's a scary term, cessationism. But the Lord is helping us be illuminated in our hearts to cast off hardness of prejudice that would say, well, the first chapter of the Bible dis- you know, disqualifies the rest of it. You know? uh, but I agree that the Holy Spirit works with the word in our hearts. God's secret counsels and how that's being done. But by faith we take it because 
Yes. And we can we can take uh, hope from that, a confidence from that. Amen. Any other comments or questions about the doctrine of perspicuity? Scripture is meant to be comprehended. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith in this paragraph acknowledges that not every part of Scripture, nor is every doctrine derived from it, as easy or as clear as every other doctrine. Right? It says here that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Well, we've read this before when we talked about other doctrines, but if you turn to 2 Peter... Three sixteen. The Apostle Peter, I think, in good faith, talks about another Apostle's writings and epistles. Also, in all his epistles, he's talking about his beloved brother Paul, speaking in them of these things, in which are some hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do all the rest of the Scriptures. We talked about that verse a while back in the lesson on the canon where Peter testifies to Paul's writings as canon of scripture. But it also makes it clear that not everything in scripture is alike plain unto itself. There is a variety in ease uh, ease and difficulty when it comes to the doctrines of holy scripture. The confession also notes that not every believer is at the same reading level and understanding of the scriptures too. It also says that nor alike clear unto all. So not only is every doctrine at a various variation of difficulty, but every reader is at a different place in their walk with God and their understanding of the scriptures. And I want to highlight this concept. It's a biblical concept. We're going to read a couple scriptures about it, of spiritual milk versus solid food. And it's a very helpful analogy that is used in scripture for, for us, right, who really, at any point in time, should be partaking of a diet of dairy and meat when it comes to the Bible. So if you would read with me in Hebrews 5. Starting in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So here we have this concept of spiritual milk and solid food. We also read about the milk of the word in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So, in your own words, and I want to offer this to the group, how, how would we define milk, a diet of milk, and a diet of solid food? 
as described by the author of Hebrews and maybe what is talked about here by the Apostle Peter. Yeah, so I think what we, when we wrestle with the idea that not all things are alike clear unto themselves in the scripture, those that are quite clear and essential are, are spiritual milk, for sure. Art. You know, you know, that sort of thing. You know, there's, a, there's a disconnect here. Yes, yeah. So the idea of filet to an infant might look like in the church of God, hey, welcome to Reformation Presbyterian Church. Do you want to dive deep today into the doctrine of cessationism and spiritual gifts? I mean, that might look like giving flame and yon to an infant. Julie? Mm. Yeah, so Julie just mentioned the, the fact that God is creator of the birds, the bees, all things that we see and perceive. That is a digestible truth where all the implications of God as a father might be more solid food. Yeah, for sure. Any other thoughts or examples? Spiritual milk versus solid food? Linda? Yeah. <laughs> what have they got that I don't? 
you know? Yes, yeah. And, 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 and I don't mean to be sarcastic with the audible voice thing, you know, or, or having to pray in tongues because I don't have the right words, you know, until I became convinced if I don't know what I'm saying, I may not be saying good things, you know, yep. without an interpreter, not that God can't do all of those things. I believe he does. Well, sister, I, I really like the idea of the communion of the saints is kind of what you're drawing out here is that we together are a community who are together trying to search the scriptures. Exactly. Yes. And yes. Yeah. We're wrestling with God for sure. Yes. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I mean, a couple other examples of this idea of spiritual milk and solid food, um, or at least one good example, the recognition of Jesus as the Son of God, clearly communicated in the Scriptures. Anybody who says otherwise has not really read the Scriptures in a discerning way, or has not been illuminated by the Spirit. Versus delving into the depths and implications of the hypostatic union of God's humanity, Christ's humanity and his divinity. That's something that every Christian has always been boggled by and we will continue to be boggled by throughout history and uh, eternity. And that's the meat. The spectrum is seen in the man who was born blind that said, I was born blind, but all I can tell you is now that I can see, right? Versus the Apostle Paul who writes the epistle to the Romans. So there's a difference in maturity level and, and reading comprehension with God's word, and, and we need to acknowledge that. I would argue also the temptation for Reformed churches, because we've got to talk about our own individual study and understanding of God's word, but also traditions. There are traditions in the world today. Uh, you might see in non-denominational evangelical churches where they are only sipping on the milk of God, and they stay there. And then you have Reformed churches that are that have robust doctrines of, or statements of faith, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. They have um, a lot of deep theological history, and for example, the Puritans um, and some of the early church fathers. But the temptation for a lot of reformers today is to take a massive bite of steak without washing it down with some milk. All of a sudden, you're choking on your steak. So let's go ahead and grasp that idea of even though we are to move on to a diet of solid food, we are never to depart from the milk, the precious milk of the word, right? These saving truths that are central uh, and need to be emphasized in the preaching and need to be emphasized in our life. Some things, you know, we talked about the perspicuity of scripture, but some things aren't revealed to us at all. And we need to acknowledge that too. Uh, we don't know who the elect are. They aren't walking around with a little light bulb over top of their heads. This side of heaven. This side of heaven, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Even then, I think there are some things about God that we're going to be meditating on throughout time uh, or outside of time. Other things, we don't know what heaven's exactly going to be like. The, the scriptures don't tell us. They tell us there's a bodily resurrection, but we're left in wonder about the glories, other glories of heaven. Uh, and that's okay. We don't know how God is, I think, Linda, you were talking, we don't know how God has acted in certain ways in history or motivations of our Lord. But I think what we can be encouraged by 
in Deuteronomy 29, 29, is that the, this reads God's word, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And we can be confident in that. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This promise is to us and to our children. The word of God is able to be perceived and understood by children. And saving truths are very clear um, in the scriptures, the clarity of scripture. One of the statements of faith in the form of a creed that I think really helps us understand some of those central spiritual milk cannot divert from truths is the Apostles' Creed. So when we think about the Apostles' Creed, it's an ancient creed, right? And I have a little paragraph here on its history. The creed owes its name to the fact that it summarizes the essential tenets of the apostolic faith. Not that it was penned by apostles. It actually was penned probably sometime in the early 2nd century. Uh, in fact, here I have its earliest form was found in a letter in, in and around 340 A.D., for the purpose of preparing prospective members of the church for baptism. So we have some of the earliest catechism in the Apostles' Creed. It was most likely not finalized until the 6th century, but uh, the Apostles' Creed is sometimes called the Apostolic Confession of Faith. The Creed sets forth succinctly and in logical order all the essential doctrines a church of Jesus Christ must adhere to. And for the purposes of this class, the clear and saving truths that are set forth in Scripture as described in this paragraph, paragraph 7. What I want to do now, and uh, we are moving along pretty good with our time, is I want to walk through the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed and kind of highlight that these things are clearly perceived and communicated by Scripture. So if you all want to turn to, I believe it's... Oh, boy. Page 851, is that right? 851. We, we turn there so often in our public worship. I just had it right here. 851. And I'm going to read each article of the Apostles' Creed, and then I'm going to, I'm going to provide either a or, or several scriptural proofs. And my hope is that by the end of this reading, all of us can be inspired um, to appreciate the Lord for the things that he's clearly communicated to us. So, the first article, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mr. John Nyman last week did such a good job at talking about the concept of good and necessary consequence. So here we have Explicit truths, God created the heavens and the earth, but those that are implied by good and necessary consequences that before him nothing was made. Things that we have here were made from nothing, ex nihilo. The second article, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord. John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 6.67-69 Then Jesus said to the twelve, 
Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Article 3 of the Apostles' Creed. Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary? Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Luke 1.31-32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The fourth article of the Apostles' Creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Mark 15, 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consolation with the elders and scribes and with the council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven fifty, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark fifteen forty-six. Then he, Joseph of Arimathea, brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in linen, and he laid him in the tomb of which had been hewed out of rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. The fifth article, the third day he rose again from the dead. Matthew 28, 6. He is not here, for he is risen. As he has said, come, see the place where the Lord had laid. Mark sixteen six. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. Luke twenty four thirty eight through 39 Then he, the risen Jesus, said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, and it is I myself. Handle me and see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Article 6 He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Luke twenty four fifty one. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was that he was parted from them and carried up to heaven. Hebrews twelve two. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Article seven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Acts 1, 10 through 11. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 2 Timothy 4, 4 1. I charge you, therefore, before the before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. I believe in the Holy Ghost. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, who shall I, whom, whom I shall send from 
to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Article 9. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints. 1 Peter 2.9 reads, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. John 17.11 Now I, that is Jesus, am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, being his disciples. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Article 10, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 5, 8 through 9, but God demonstrates him, his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Article 11, the resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 43. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. John 11, 23 through 24. Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And the twelfth article, and life everlasting. Amen. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father are one. I think we can all grow in appreciation of this creed as it sets forth these 12 articles of the essentialness of the apostolic faith and in uh, accordance with the paragraph we read today. These are clearly perceived in scripture and are capable of being understood by not only the learned but the unlearned among us. Any questions about the Apostles' Creed, the Articles of Faith, or anything we've discussed today. We are nearing the end. Linda? The very same reasons that they had to get together and iron this out with Scripture mm. is still going on today. It's on hyperdrive, though, with all the new movies and things that are coming out. Um, but the Scripture hasn't changed. Mm-mm. is challenging. Well, I thank you all for being here today. So if we were to to summarize our understanding of Holy Scripture to this point, we understand that Scripture is perspicuous. Perspicuous. That's the word of the day. And meant to be understood, believed, obeyed. It's clear that the common man must have access to it. Such as the plowboy that William Tyndale spoke of. Not just the religious elite or those that can speak Latin. Next week we're going to talk about the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. We're going to talk about original manuscripts. And we're going to also talk about the concept of translation. 
translating the Bible into the common tongue of every nation so that all men everywhere can understand the saving truths that Scripture is trying to communicate. So that all people may praise him in all the earth and that all his saints would be called home to be with him. If there are no further questions, I'm going to pray and then we're going to get ready for public worship and uh, thank you all for your time. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the provision of your holy word, your whole counsel before us which nothing shall be added or nothing shall be taken away. We thank you that you've given us the ability to reason and recognize your word and to heed and obey and follow your word. Father, we thank you that that word has been translated into our own tongue, into English. Help us to grow in appreciation for your word, Lord, and and not be dissatisfied with what happens on the Lord's Day. Help us to be here present and ready to hear the word preached to your people so that we can have a diet of spiritual milk and solid food so that we can grow up into the man of God that you have designed us to be. Lord, you are good and gracious to us and help us to be engaged and active hearers of the word in public worship today and also to be doers of the word And not just hearers only. So that at the fellowship meal after public worship we would have such love and communion with one another. That it would be evident that your spirit is at work among us. Father we pray for revival amongst us. In the way that you have designed it to operate. And these things we pray knowing that you are with us and receive our prayers. Amen.